So it's a privilege to see each of you um, again. Uh, I know it came once before. It's good to see a lot of the same faces. Um, it's it's a privilege also to uh, to see those of you who have tra- who have moved here from Cornerstone. Um, it's it's good to renew old friendships and acquaintances. Um, I, I think of each of you and how um, many of us met years ago. Um, we had hair that was darker. Um, many of us had less less kids. I think I'm the only one with a, a full set of uh, good colored hair left. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, less kids. Uh, I, was, I was thinking, I remember um, uh, when I met Pastor Rick when we came to Cornerstone 13 years ago. I think Rebecca was about the age of my youngest son, and we were pregnant with my oldest daughter. And the Lord has been very merciful. Um, and uh, looking at this church, um, sitting here experiencing your order of service, um, taking the Lord's Supper with you in unity. Um, I am um, very thankful to the Lord for you and um, praying for you um, and, um, and just, yeah, praising the Lord in, in my heart, um, thinking about you. So praise God. So let's, if you will, um, please stand with me and with your Bibles open uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Um, Our sermon this morning is actually going to be on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. But for context's sake, I'd like to read verses 3 through 14. And it reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, In the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. And as you're being seated, uh, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father in heaven, this morning 
we praise you for your glorious grace. And we look to you and we ask you this morning, our Father, that you would bless and attend the preaching of your word with the Holy Spirit who proceeds from you. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand what your word has to say about your election of us, about your adoption of us, your people, about your love for us, your people. Help us, Lord, to see and to experience who we really are in Jesus Christ, who you have made us to be in your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, give me utterance to speak and to speak well. Lord, help me to speak clearly. Father, help your people and even those here who may not be your people. Help them to hear um, and understand very well and clearly. Lord, that they may um, know you, that they may turn from their sins, that they may love you, that you may do a work in their heart through the preaching of your word. Have you not, Lord, ordained the preaching of your word um, to be the, the means by which you bring men and women unto yourself? So, Lord, we ask you this morning, we ask you um, without doubting, but we ask you um, understanding our dependence upon you. So please help us in this endeavor as we preach and listen to your word preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to start, I'm going to reread our, um, verses 3 through 6. Verses 3 through 6, where our sermon is going to be preached from. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our sermon this morning is the Father's glorious grace. And this is, a, this is a very beautiful text, isn't it? It's an absolutely beautiful text. And the more you understand this text, the more beautiful it will become to you if you're a Christian. And what Paul has written for us here is it's an Old Testament Jewish-style eulogy. And when I say eulogy here, I'm not talking about a funeral message. This is, this is a particular type of construction that you see um, starting in the Old Testament. Even in Genesis 14, the first one of these types of eulogies you see um, from Melchizedek as he blesses the Lord after Abraham um, wins this conquest um, over various kings who attacked Sodom when he rescued his brother Lot or his nephew Lot. And Every one of these eulogies has this particular structure. It begins with, blessed be the God who, then fill in the blank. Blessed be the God who, and then we see 
what we should bless God for. What are these works of God that he is blessed for? What are these things? What is this God who we should be ascribing praise to? And this, this isn't just a spontaneous praise of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. This is a very carefully put together exaltation that Paul has. It's a very well-ordered exaltation. Overall, what Paul is doing here in verses 3 through 14, he's praising specifically the first person of the Trinity, the Father. This entire eulogy is a praise to the Father. And within this eulogy where he praises the Father, he praises the Father by showing the works of the Father. He praises the Father because of the Father's work for us through the Son. And then he praises the Father because of his work for us through the Holy Spirit. So he involves the whole Trinity in this praise to the first person of the Trinity. It's a very well-ordered exaltation. We see how the Father is the origin and the source of all spiritual blessing. All spiritual blessing comes from the Father, originated from the Father. We see the Son is the mediator, the redeemer, the one who has purchased us by his blood. And we see the Spirit, he is the one who applies this work to the believer, and he marks the believer um, through regeneration, through indwelling them. It's by the Spirit that you look like your father, if you're a Christian, that you have the marks of your father. Just like you see someone's kids and you see in the kid's face, their father's face. Um, it's the Spirit that gives you the face of your father. And in this eulogy also, all throughout, we see the benefits provided by the Father to us, but all of these benefits come to us in Christ, in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this doctrine, this doctrine of the union with Christ, if you've never heard of it, it's the fundamental root to the Christian life, union with Christ. This union with Christ is in place in every stage, if you will, of your salvation. Every work that the Father has applied to you in salvation, it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an inseparable and an intimate union that a believer has with the Lord Jesus Christ, where you can be in him. And you see phrases, even throughout this particular text, a number of times, um, you see phrases like, in him, in Christ, in whom, speaking of Christ, in the beloved, speaking of Christ, is Christ as the beloved son of the father. This is a clear theme in Paul's thinking. Everything that happens here in verses 3 through 14, it's always in Christ, through Christ. In whom? In the beloved. In Christ, a spiritual, inseparable, intimate union. And we're going to look a little bit at that, that union, just a little bit, when we talk about election 
and adoption. If you're, if you're a believer and you were chosen by the Father, that means you were chosen by the Father. And when you were chosen by the Father, you were chosen by the Father, not alone. You were chosen by the Father in Christ. When you're adopted as a son, you're adopted as a son in Christ. Even when Christ died, you, you died being in him. When he was raised, you were raised with him, being in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes, has this as a clear theme running through this eulogy. It's a very carefully crafted eulogy, a very carefully crafted text, not spontaneous, not spontaneous at all. So when you see something that's very carefully put together, especially when you see something in the Bible that is this carefully put together, this carefully ordered, what should your first thought be? Your first thought should be, what's the purpose of this? Why, why is it this way? This is one of the most ordered statements you'll find in all of Scripture. Why is it this way? Why did Paul take so much time to put this together? And he is tr- you see that he's trying to get something across to you. He's trying to show you something by the way that he has put this together. And in this text, what he's doing is he's doing, he's doing triple duty here. This is what he's going to be trying to get across to you. He's trying to show you, if you're a Christian, who you are in Jesus Christ. What we have here is the basis for your Christian life. He's showing you who you are. And that's one of the most important things to understand for the Christian. Who the Father has made you in Jesus Christ. But also, too, you see that Paul here is inviting you to praise God with him. He's not just showing you who you are and what has been done for you, but he's also ascribing blessing to the Lord. He's ascribing praise to him. And he's doing it in such a way that you ought to do the same thing as well. And lastly, he's actually, in in this book of Ephesians, he's actually establishing an argument for the rest of the book. Just like many of these epistles of Paul, you see in the very beginning, you see a lot of doctrine, a lot of very clear, unadulterated doctrine. But then as you move to the end, you see now knowing this doctrine, how is this supposed to affect how I live? How is this supposed to affect how I act in the church, how I treat my wife, how I treat my husband, how I treat my children? It affects how you live. And he's establishing his arguments up front. So um, he wants you to see who you are. He wants you to praise God for making you who you are. And he wants you to live for your Lord. And this text too, um, you can tell from the way it is written, Paul not only wants you to see the truth in this text, he doesn't want you just to see um, the nuts and bolts. He wants you to see the beauty in this text. He wants you to see the beauty of the gospel. 
It's one thing, it's one thing to have a diamond in your hand and to be able to cut every angle. You can be very skilled, you know, it might be one of those, I don't know what they call jewelers, I guess, you know, and, and they, they cut and chisel the diamond. They have that little thing on their eyes so they can see it really well. Um, but it's, so it's one thing to be able to do that with a diamond. It's another thing to be able to step back and to watch that diamond sparkle. It's one thing to be able to read a recipe or to make a good meal. It's another thing to be able to taste your food. You know what that is, right? There's, it's, if you can make donuts, but you can't eat them, what's the point? <laughs> if you can make a pot of gumbo like we do where I'm from and you can't eat it, what's the point? He wants you to see the truth, the truth of your salvation if you're a Christian. But he also wants you to see the beauty of it. And in this text, you see beauty. And the Christian ought to be able to look at his salvation and see beauty. And to, and to be just like Paul here and be able to say, blessed be the God who does all of these things. So let's, let's think here, let's, let's, the outline of how we're going to look at this text. The first point you're going to see in verse 3 is we're going to praise the Father for his every spiritual blessing. We're going to praise the Father for his every spiritual blessing. In verses 4 through 5, our second point will be to praise the Father for his election and adoption. And lastly, in verse 6, our third point will be to praise the Father for his glorious grace. Praise the Father for his glorious grace. So for our first point, in praising the Father for every spiritual blessing, let's look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places. Amen. Consider, consider this word blessed or blessed. Paul here is ascribing praise to the Father. And this is a this first word here in the Greek is an adjective, eulagetas. And this adjective is only ever used in reference to God. Now in the Bible. When you read the word blessed, it can be a number of different words in the original text. But in this case, it is eulagetas, only ever ascribed to God. There's other words that mean blessed. Um, you think of in the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, blessed are the merciful. That's another word that's talking about those who are happy or fortunate um, in regards to their circumstances. But Paul here is giving one of the highest praises with his words that he can give to God, ascribing praise to him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's trying to get something across even in this one verse because he uses the word variations of the word blessed three times here. He uses a noun, he uses a verb and an adjective, like we just mentioned in, in, in reference to God. 
He's, he's, he's basically saying, blessed is the Lord who has blessed us with blessing. And if you read Greek, if you were one of these people who read this, this epistle the first time it was read in a congregational setting, you would have noticed it. You would have noticed, okay, he's trying to get something across here. He's trying to show us something. He's getting our attention. See, the Father is the blessed one, and we, we receive benefits from him. We receive benefits from the blessed one. So what has he blessed us with? What has the Father blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing. And it's an immeasurable gift. Think about the fact that he uses the word every or all in in regards to these spiritual blessings. He's showing you how this blessing cannot be quantified. It cannot be quantified. You cannot put a number on it. It's not merely that there are a number of blessings that God had to take and kind of and put together, you know, and uh, piece them together like a puzzle and give them to you. What's, re- what's really being brought forth here is the fact that this blessing of salvation that you've received is the epitome of all blessing. This is the blessing of blessing. This is every blessing. Everything that can be a blessing is here in your salvation if you're a Christian. It is the most immeasurable gift, the most immeasurable privilege that you can have, this salvation. In fact, he speaks a little more about how immeasurable this is further on in Ephesians. If you look further down into the chapter, starting at verse 15. And it reads, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he wants them to know what they've been called to, what, what, they've, been, what they've received. And look at what he says here. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We receive Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I dare you to put a number on that blessing. Put a price on it. How many dollars is it worth? It's not worth any money. 
Money can't buy this. And there's not a currency that you can create that can buy this blessing. This is an immeasurable blessing. Immeasurable. And this should make the Christian rejoice. The immeasurable blessing of having the Lord Jesus Christ, of having salvation. He, now, moving on to, he mentions that this is, he doesn't just mention this as every blessing. But he says we receive every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Now, what do we usually think of when we think of the word spiritual? Spiritual. Many people, they think um, like something that's in the spirit realm, you know, something that's not solid like this pulpit or like this stage or the ground you're standing on. They think, oh, yeah, something in the spirit realm, something ethereal, something I can't see. Some people think when they think of spiritual, they think of something that's um, extra pious, you know, high minded. Um, you kind of imagine, you know, Catholic priests with his hands like this or something like that. But no, in the New Testament, when you see the word spiritual, um, one thing should usually tip you off is this pertaining, not necessarily to the spirit realm, but it's something that is pertaining to the person of the Holy Spirit. These blessings that we receive in Christ, according to our salvation, are dispensed, they're applied by the Holy Spirit. They're given to us by the Holy Spirit, by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. Any blessing that you have received has been given to you by him. It comes from the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through our union with him and applied specifically to you by the Holy Spirit, by his indwelling, by his powerful working in you. He is the one who regenerates. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. It, so when you see here every spiritual blessing, you should be thinking this immeasurable blessing of my salvation, this immeasurable thing that I have gotten through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So consider here also the significance of Christ's sonship. Notice here that he says, <clears throat> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say simply, blessed be the Father, or blessed be God the Father, who has blessed us in Christ. No, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't merely refer to the Father by his title. He refers to the Father by his title and by his relationship with the Son. And Paul understands something very important here. Paul understands that our salvation, these spiritual blessings that we have, they're dependent upon the relationship that the Father has with the Son. There is no love 
There's no love from the Father except through the Son. There's no relationship with the Father except through the Son. You cannot know the Father but by the Son. It's the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of his nature, as it says in Hebrews 1. It is by the Son that you know him. Jesus being the Word of God. It is only through the Son. And Paul has this so clear in his mind that he, he never forgets to refer to the Son when thinking of the blessings from the Father. He understands that all of these, th- these things, they come through the Son, through the Son. And this understanding, too, I mentioned union with Christ before, that everything that we've received, that we receive them in Christ. This understanding of Christ being the Son of God, Christ being the Son of the Father, that's what gives union with Christ his teeth. Think about it. If Christ isn't the Son of God, every time in this passage that you see in Christ or in the Beloved, it would mean nothing. It would mean nothing unless he were really the eternal Son of God. So, All of our blessings come through the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So now where do these blessings reside? Where do these blessings come from? He tells us, in the heavenly places, in the heavenly places. And this is where Christ is, as we read in verses 15 through 23. This is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ is in heaven, and so are our blessings coming through him. And these blessings, they're not tied to the existence that you see with your eyes here. It's not tied to this earth. It's not tied to your temporal existence. These blessings will not go away. These blessings show you The security, the fact that it's from heaven shows you the security of your blessings. It shows you the nature of them. Considering the nature of those who reside in heaven, God himself. This is is a secure blessing that you have. And this blessing, it will be there in this age, and it will be there in the age to come if you're a Christian. This blessing of your salvation is an immense blessing spiritual blessing that resides in the heavenly places. This is a wonderful truth, a wonderful truth. And this statement, is this statement not very rich? This is a very rich statement, just to bless the Father who's blessed us with every spiritual blessings in Christ, in the heavenly places. And consider that in this eulogy, this statement is just a header. It's just a header. There's so many details to it. It's just a header showing you what Paul is going to get into in the further verses. But think about this statement before we move on. Does it excite you? Does it excite you to know that you have been blessed by the Father through Christ? Does that get your heart pumping and going? Does that well you up with joy, filling you, making, causing you to say, yes, Paul, 
I want to know more about these blessings. I want to praise the Father with you. I love the Father. He loves me. Do you bless God thinking of his blessings for you? Do you meditate upon the blessing of salvation that you've received? Or is this something that you readily forget? Is this something that you remember only on a Sunday morning or only when you come to small group? Or is this something that fuels your day from start to finish? If you're not meditating on the blessings that you've received from the Father, what do you meditate on? If God were to play a video of your meditations, what would, what, what would that video look like? Considering how immeasurable these blessings are, considering how they're in Christ, considering how, we're, how Paul here praises him, how these are spiritual blessings given by the Holy Spirit, um, and they reside in the heavenly places, ought we not to bless God in our hearts all the time, all the time? And it, what it shows us is it shows us how big or small our thoughts are of our God and how big or small our thoughts are of his works. People who think small about God think small thoughts and they forget God, just like the Israelites forgot God. And they grumbled and complained even after God um, uh, delivered them from Egypt. Those who don't have him, those who aren't converted, they may even look at the scripture and they may even say, yes, I believe these things. But that belief is only up here. But it never reaches anywhere else. And their meditations will show that as well. My brethren, what are your meditations before God? Do you meditate upon his blessings? I tell you, to the extent that you meditate upon who your God is and what he has given to you, is the extent that you will grow in grace. Let's move on here to our next point. Our next point, where we'll praise the Father for his election and adoption. Look at verses, look starting at verse four with me, verses four and five. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to to the purpose of his will. People don't like this, right? People don't like this truth. This truth that God would choose everyone who would be his. The fact that we aren't the ones who choose. I bet many of you are, are, are like me. You've been taught from a little child that you're the one who can choose God that you're the one who controls this destiny of yours, that you're the captain of your soul, that you're the master of your fate. And see, in our flesh, 
The issue is we want control, don't we? We want control. We want to, we want to be the ones in charge. In our flesh, we desire to be God. We desire to determine our own fate. We desire to be the captains of our souls. And I tell you what, what a, what a grand heresy, what a grand heresy to, to state and to believe that God has no choice in your salvation or that you are the one who chooses. What a grand heresy. And not only is that a heresy, the Bible is very clear here that God, the Father is the one who chooses, not just in this text, but many other texts. But that heresy leads to so many other heresies. You know, when I was a, a little boy, I was, um, I believed that heresy that I can choose. And I was taught that if I asked Jesus into my heart, that I'd be a Christian. I was taught that I was the one who makes the decision whether I'm going to be a Christian or not. And I was taught as if God was beholden to what I decided to do. But God is not like that. God does what he pleases. He does what he pleases. And especially, how, how, how especially foolish that is, is considering what Paul says even in Ephesians 2. That outside of Christ, we're dead in sin. It's not this that we have little power outside of Christ. We have no power. You couldn't choose God if you wanted to. You don't have enough muscle to choose God because your muscles aren't alive. You have no life unless you're given life by the Spirit of God. He is the one who chooses and he is the one who gives life. And to the Christian, though, this is a very comforting thought. This is not controversial to the Christian. Because to the Christian, you look and you see this and you say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that I've been chosen. And not only that, you see the love in it. It's a love you've never seen before. You can't undo God's choosing. You see security in the fact that God has chosen you. It's a decree that cannot be broken. It's a choice that can't be undone. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And I think of this all the time. Um, I grew up, and I know some of you probably did too. If you're converted, you can think of people um, you grew up with and who you know. People who may be more talented than you in many ways. They can speak better than you. If they were to read the Bible, they'd know it way more than you do. Um, way more things that you and your flesh could say, you know, God could do more with him than he could with me. And God chose you. God chose me. And I'm not trying to give you the impression as if God chooses out of a lineup. God doesn't choose out of a lineup. God chooses according. To, he, he's done this like we'll, we'll get into it later before the foundation of the, of the world. 
but he chose you. And praise the Lord that he chose you. And what security you have if he has chosen you. What a beautiful thought. What a beautiful thought. Especially consider, considering you could not have chosen him. What, what a kind God he is. So through whom does God choose us? He chooses us in Christ, like we said before, in Christ. All the benefits of God's choosing you come in your union with him. When the father chooses his people, or when he chose, I should say, his people, he has chosen them in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mysterious and spiritual and beautiful union. But you were chosen in him, incorporated in him. And this election that you have in him has many benefits. This means that when he chose you, you were not just considered to be in him. You were actually in him. You were in him. I'm not saying that you were physically in him in some way, but you were in him. That means when Christ died, you died in him. When he was raised, you were raised with him being in him. That's why in Colossians 3, um, when Paul says, um, you who have been raised with Christ, he's able to speak of being raised with Christ past tense as if, as if you've already been raised and as if you're already in heaven. Why? Because when Christ raised, you were raised. And we, when he ascended into heaven, you ascended into heaven. Now, that's not to mean that you experience all the realities of that right now. But it is just as true as it is said. He has chosen you in him, in him. And all of those benefits of salvation coming through him, they come through him with you being in him. This isn't like I said, this isn't just a legal declaration. He's not saying you're considered to be in him or you're judged to be in him. You are actually in him, in him, in the same union, in the same body, in him. So when, when did the father choose? When did the father choose you if you're a Christian? He's chosen you before the foundation of the world. And you have to think, why is this important that it's before the foundation of the world? Why is that important? It's important because it makes God's choice a free choice. It's a free choice. This wasn't based on anything you did or could do. This isn't based on anything that, um, that you could know or believe. This is a completely free choice. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. God made that choice, as we know, in Romans 9, not based on anything that those brothers would, would do, good or bad. And so it's the same with you. If you're chosen in Christ, you're chosen before the foundation of the world, before you could ever do a thing. Some people like to butcher, butcher this text, and they, they take other texts, and they misuse the word foreordained. 
and they try to make it look as if God looked through the corridors of time to see what you would do and make a decision based off of what you would do. But that's not the case. God the Father has made a decree, and what you would do is based on his choice. It's not that God has decided that you would be a Christian based on what you would do. It's it's the opposite way around. You would do what you do based upon God's decision to make you his. He has ordained all things, and God does whatever he pleases. God is independent. He He does not ask advice from men. God does not give you a call and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Do you have anything to shed light on this for me? No, God, God, he knows all things. He has decreed all things. He has ordained all things. He is all wise. He needs no help. He is independent. He's not made up of parts. He is, he is the perfection of being. And he decrees, he declares all that is and will be. So God, if you're a Christian, God has chosen you. And that is a choice that cannot be undone. And praise the Lord for that. What security that is, what beauty that is. Consider this too, the purpose, the purpose of his election. He says that you might be holy and blameless before him. This, this suggests too, it's a little slight suggestion, but it's a suggestion that you were once not holy and you once had blame. But he chose you that you would be holy and blameless before him that your sin would be taken away in Christ. All of your blame will be placed on the cross. Or you can sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The Christian, holy and blameless. And not just holy, and blameless positionally, but holy and blameless actually, actually holy and blameless, practically holy and blameless. And when we think, too, of being holy, we should also think, a lot of times we think of, of just not having sin, you know? Um, not having not having committed a sin. But what we've received in Christ isn't just the taking away of our sin. We've received righteousness from him. His perfect life, we receive it as ours, being in him, in him. So consider that. How do you live before God now? that you would be holy and blameless. You know, um, in the Greek, this, this, this is an infinitive, it's present tense. This, holy, this holiness and this blamelessness is to be for right now. 
It's, this is not just a holiness and a blamelessness that you will have on the day of judgment before God in his throne, on his throne. But this is in the holiness and a blamelessness that is to be worked in you right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that is why um, it's, a, it's, it's shown to us as a mark of the Christian in the Bible. You read books like First John and you find out, oh man, I can't, I can't be a Christian if I'm living like the world. This is a holiness that without it, um, no man can please the Lord. You must be holy and blameless before him. It suggests a responsibility, doesn't it? It suggests a responsibility to live before him righteously. It's funny. It's, it's very easy to talk about God choosing us. It's another thing, right, to talk about living according to that choosing. God's people, holy and blameless. But there's another purpose. There's another purpose that he elected us. And that is for us to be adopted as sons, sons and daughters of the Father. And he uses the word predestined here, meaning God has determined this beforehand. He has determined beforehand that you would be his son, that you would be his daughter if you're a believer. This isn't, this isn't just a choosing to be saved. This isn't just a choosing for your sin to be taken away. This isn't just a choosing that you would not go to hell. This is being brought in to God's family. You receive a new family, a new ethnicity, if you will. You are, not, you are no longer where you're from. You are no longer who you were. You are now a prince or a princess to a king, the king of kings. An immense privilege, all of the rights and privilege of being a son or a daughter. Now you have it. You have it being brought into his family. Think about that. You being a finite person, a finite person, all the limits in the world. And now you have a father who has no limits and the infinite father who exists outside of time, who cannot dwell with evil. And he, in his wisdom, in Christ, has brought you in as a son or a daughter. This is a thought that you have no right to even think of outside, outside of his decree. You wouldn't even imagine this, knowing God, that you could be a son or daughter of God. It is less likely for you to be a son or daughter of God outside of his decree than for you to be likely to be a son or daughter of the, the Queen of England. Consider that. That's not something you would have ever imagined. It, it has to be make-believe. But this is real, and it's been done for you, and it's been done for you in Christ. What a privilege. What a privilege that God would love you in that way. 
you being a child of God, not just being a child of his, loved as a child of his, loved as his son, loved as his daughter, complete access to the father who you could not even stand before in your sin, even without sin. You had no right to stand before him. But now being his son or daughter, you can stand before him and you can come with boldness with your petitions and prayer. Call out to him, Abba, Father. How? Because now you have been made a son or daughter in Jesus Christ. So then the question arises, do you share in the sonship of Christ? You know, Christ is the son of the father. Are you now a son or a daughter like Christ is a son to the father? And the answer to that is no. You're not a son as Christ is a son. Christ's sonship is an eternal sonship. Christ never became the son to God the Father. Christ is the son to the Father. Um, We become sons. And that relationship that Christ has is in a whole other category. His sonship. We do not take upon us the divine essence as Christ has. You remain a finite person. Um, in fact, um, you think of John 20, uh, Jesus, Jesus speaks to Mary Magdalene um, before his ascension. And he says um, that he will ascend. He says, I will ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He never says, uh, speaking to other people collectively, our father. Even when he uses the word our father, like you think of the Lord's prayer, Right. He's not saying, let's pray together to our father together, disciples. He's instructing the disciples how to pray. So he's saying, you disciples, when you pray, you say our father. But he never refers to the father collectively as in we share the same relationship as father to son as he shares with the father. But we are still nonetheless sons to a wonderful, perfect father. And on top of that, our sonship depends upon Christ's sonship. So that is still very important and still very beautiful. If Christ doesn't have this wonderful, eternal, separate sonship to the father, we have no hope, no hope of a sonship with the father. So that same, we have Christ's father is the same person of the Trinity as our father. The father is our father, is the father of Christ and our father. (laughs) At the same time, his sonship is different and separate from our sonship. And our sonship depends upon his sonship. Well, what a beautiful thing that is, that we wicked, foolish people, not just wicked and foolish on the inside either. We've demonstrated our foolishness. We've demonstrated our foolishness in the stupid things that we've said and the stupid, sinful, evil things that we've done. Things that we would not speak about and things that God 
would not let come out of his mouth. But he has given us the privilege of being sons and daughters. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. But there's more. There's more. What is the disposition? What is the disposition of this election and adoption that we have? Some of your Bibles say the purpose of his will. Um, maybe a better way to look at that is the. Um, some of them say the good pleasure of his will or the kind intention of his will. Paul is getting a, giving, getting a point here. He's not just saying, he's not just saying that it was the will of the Father that we would be elected and adopted. He's saying that it's the good pleasure of his will. Those are overlapping terms, God's pleasure and his will, what God desires and what he wills. But Paul is showing that there's a tenderness, there's a tenderness to this will of God. There's a there's a loving, kind disposition that God has to his sons and daughters. This is the good pleasure of his will. It is his will, and God does whatever he pleases. But at the same time, God, the Father, delights. He delights in electing his people. He delights in choosing them. He delights and adopting his people as sons and daughters. He delights in it. And this delight that the father has, this isn't a passion. This isn't a passion like our passions. You see, we, we delight in things. We get happy and we get sad. We're, we're, we're angry and then we cool off. You know, you like the ice cream, you hate the salad. Or at least I do. But the father... This is an infinite delight, an infinite delight that has no limits to it. This is not based upon some circumstance for him. This is a settled disposition towards you. This is a secure disposition towards you if you're a Christian. Consider the tender love of God towards you if you're a Christian. This is, this is according to who he is. This is wrapped up in his character. He wills to choose you. He wills to have you as his son or daughter. And he delights in it infinitely. Just as infinitely as he wills it, he infinitely delights in it. And he infinitely loves you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now consider, consider. Do you praise the Lord for this? That's the reaction of Paul, right? We're going to get into that for the, in the next verse where he praises the Father for his glorious grace. But do you praise him for what he has done? You know, I mentioned this at home when I preached this sermon in, in Cornerstone, how I, uh, I joke with my kids all the time about being rich. You know, I, uh, if we see something expensive in the store or, you know, if I happen to be buying something that's not, you know, a trivial buy, I'll explain to my, I'll tell my kids, yeah, you know, I'm rich. Your dad's rich. 
and and I explain to them things like, you know, Americans, Americans are rich, you know, even the poorest American, like if you look at the entire world, you're not like the top 5%, you know, when it comes to, to riches. Um, and, you know, we Christians, we tend to walk around and act as if we have received nothing. We act as if we don't have anything. We grumble and complain. You think of the Israelites, right? Delivered from Egypt. God has been good to them. And then the next thing you know, man, you know, back in Egypt, we had onions and leeks and meat. Yeah, we thought we thought we had it. We thought we had it good. But no, we are rich. We have everything, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have an immeasurable gift from the Father that ought to garner praise from God's people. It ought to make us sit down and think, what am I to do with all these riches I've received? I am so filthy rich. Bill Gates has nothing on this. Donald Trump has nothing on this. The al-whatever of whatever in Saudi Arabia has nothing on this. I am rich. And that is Paul's reaction here as we get to our third point in verse 6, where we praise the Father for his glorious grace. He says, to the praise, in verse 6, of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All of this, all of this blessing, and Paul's not even done, right? Like we're not even a third of the way through the eulogy here. But he stops to praise the Father for his glorious grace. This all culminates in praise for the Father. The whole point of this is to ascribe praise to God. God is glorified. He reveals himself. He is manifested in how he has dispensed his grace to you. His character is revealed clearly in this. All who understand these truths, they bless the Lord, just like Paul does. Paul understands and he he puts together this well-crafted eulogy to bless the Lord. And we see it's by this grace that we are blessed in the beloved. We're blessed. Some of your, your Bibles, they, they say blessed. Some of them say bestow. Some of them say where we are made accepted in the beloved. Um, but in general here, this is the, in Greek, this is the verb. If we had a verb for grace in English, it would be that God graced us. He graced us with these blessings. We have received um, freely from him an immeasurable gift that we do not deserve, an unmerited favor from him. He's trying to get a point to you. God has graced, he's trying to get a point across to you. God has graced us with his grace. So, um, and this comes through who again? Who does this come through again? Jesus Christ, and your union with him. All of this comes through Christ, your redeemer, your mediator. You were chosen in him, adopted in him, 
redeemed in him, you died in him, and were raised with him. And you will be with him for eternity if you're a Christian. All your benefits, brethren, they all start here in this election and adoption from the Father. All of them. Everything in your Christian life. This is the basis. Even this understanding of who you are in Christ. Are you getting a, If you're a Christian, do you understand now a little bit more of who you are in Jesus Christ? Your privileged position? This is the basis for your Christian life. If, if, you're a, if you're a king, it would be really foolish for a king to act like a pauper, right? You don't want your president to act like a weak man. You don't want the boss of your store that you work in to act like a doorman. And they know not to act that way because they know who they are. They know the position that they've been given. Brethren, do you know the position that you've been given? Are you acting accordingly? Do you see it? Do, do you have that in your mind, the privilege that you have? Do you praise him for it? Is he not worthy of your praise? You've been blessed in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. You have been graced with this grace. And consider how worthy he is of this praise. You know, uh, we aren't like the angels. The angels, they praise him night and day, night and day. Yet the angels haven't received this. They haven't received a bit of this. But we not only ought to praise him because he's done it, but we ought to praise him for, because he's done it for us. He's done this for us. We not only see what he's done, we receive what he's done. He is worthy of us blessing him, ascribing praise to him, just as Paul is doing here. So how should we live now? How should we live according to this grace? Obviously, we are to bless him like Paul does, right? But there's more to that. When you really think now that who you are now in Christ, your privileged position, who you are, this is something worth dying for, isn't it? This is, think, and think of what men are willing to die for. They're willing to die for their country and praise God for men like that. And a country is a good thing to die for, especially a good country. I'd die for my country. But even more so, I'd die for my God and my new country, of which I'm a citizen of. You would, this is something worth giving up everything else for. This is something worth having a holy ambition for. And I'm trying to use those words carefully, holy ambition. I'm not talking simply about what you would refuse to do or what you would refuse to give up. I'm talking about your plans for life. Like, what gets you up in the morning? What do you what do you want to be known for 20 years from now? What kind of ambitions do you have? This is like what we ask our kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? Brethren, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you have a holy ambition knowing who you are in Christ? 
This is the type of thing that makes you change your plans. This is, this is the type of thing that makes you consider. It makes you consider everything from where I'm going to go this morning to what, I'm, what my career is going to be, who I'm going to talk to, where I'm going to live. This is the type of truth that will cause you to evangelize without fear. Man, the Father loves me so much. Why do I care now what they think of me? <laughs> I am going to preach the gospel to them, and I'm going to love them. I'm going to do it gently and righteously, but I'm not going to pull punches. Um, and why? I have a Father in heaven who loves me. What could they take away? What can they take away from me, the richest man on earth? And it sounds prideful if we were just talking about money, right? But is it not true? This is the type of thing that will cause you to battle sin without excuse. Consider your sin. Consider the sins that you have that no one else knows about. Knowing that God is your father, knowing that you have received these benefits from him. Would you continue in them? Would you continue committing those sins? Would you continue? Maybe it's not a sin of commission. Maybe it's not a sin that you do. Or maybe this sin is something that you refuse to do. It will change what you do in private. It will change um, the way you treat those in your family. It will change the way you treat those in your church. This is the type of truth. Knowing that God is your father and that we can say collectively, our Father, would it not change the way we fellowship with one another? Or not fellowship, right? Consider that. Think of how much time do you spend with God's people? Do you love God's people? Do you love God's people, like Pastor Rick was saying earlier, um, when it's not just a Sunday? Do you love God's people on Tuesday at 2.55 p.m. It changes the way you think about that when you understand who you are in Christ and understand who your brethren are in Christ. It changes. It changes the way you seek him in his word, how you read the Bible, how you apply it. Because now this isn't just the, this isn't the words of a mean ogre aloft in heaven, aloof from you. This is your father speaking. This is your father. And the, the thought of displeasing him is such a great shame. Such a great shame that you would hate to do it. And you, you know if you have a good father or if you are a father. You know the power a father has over his children. And not just the power of domineering, but of love. And how a child hates, hates to displease their father, hates to shame them. Every child wants to have a father that is proud of them. Do you seek him in his word? It takes the shine off of all the treasures in this world, doesn't it? No longer, when you see your position in Christ, no longer do these riches seem so appealing. No longer does would you become jealous of the rich around you? Even the wicked rich. 
even thinking about current events, it, it, it changes the way you think about them, right? Consider all of these wicked, wicked things that are happening nowadays. Wicked groups like Black Lives Matter. Wicked groups like Planned Parenthood. Wicked, 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 wicked. But, um, and some of those things may cause you to despair. It may cause you to fear. But I tell you what, I look in the Bible here and I see what Paul has to say. I really doubt that Paul would look at all the current events around him and be so consumed by them as we are about the current events around us. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Paul wouldn't preach the gospel to them, that he wouldn't have a holy opinion about them and speak wisely about them. But knowing this truth, will we not all be better off, more obsessed about our position with the Father? It would change the way you would talk the next time you see a foolish Black Lives Matter protester or or if you went to the abortion mill. It'll change the way you think of them and the way you speak to them. When thinking of a text like this, too, um, and thinking of election and adoption as always a group of people, um, and uh, they, they lack assurance. And they say, I, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. But how do I know that this is mine? You know, I, I agree with you saying this is a privileged position, but I'm not sure if this is my privileged position. And maybe there's some of you in here today where you, you're like, man, I'm not sure. Now, this isn't the part where I tell you you're a Christian. I won't do that. And the Bible doesn't give me the ability to do that. But what I can say is seek the Lord in prayer. Seek him for clarity about your soul. Find out what sins those are in your life that cause you to doubt. It may be that you have good reason for concern. It may be that you don't. Seek God for who he is. The way that the Bible presents God is not as a mean ogre. He is not a mean ogre. He is the one who tenderly preaches his gospel. He is a judge and he's a righteous judge. But he has set aside an age like now to call men to repentance. Would you repent? You know, one of the reasons that many people too, they lack assurance, even genuine Christians, is because they're lazy. Understanding this doctrine will cause you not to be lazy. It will cause you to put gusto to understanding these things. It will cause you to say, you know what? I need to find out because I need to get about my business. I, I, need to, I, need, I, I want God to be my father. I want to have him. For those of you who are children, teens, listen to me very closely. Think about this. Sometimes we look in these texts, and I know when I was a teen, when I was a child, I would look at texts like this, and I would hear the preacher preaching, and I would think, you know, this is, this is for uh, older people. And I want to tell you that there's no age discrimination in the Bible. You're not a special class of people. So God will save adults, he will save elderly people, and he will save little children. God elects, he adopts, he sanctifies, and he will bring to heaven 
children and old people alike. There are children in hell and there are old people in hell. So I encourage you to take this just as seriously as you think an adult should. And that goes for you who are older too. Don't think to yourself that I'm past, I'm past the point here. I won't believe that until you're in your casket. And you ought not to either. You turn to, you turn to Christ. And lastly, there's always a group of people, always a group of people. And I pray that none of you are in this group. But if you are, there's always a group that will say, you know what? I'm just not saved because God didn't choose me. And you know what? There may be some truth to that. But I tell you what, on the day of judgment, you're not going to be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as your judge and say, you know what? It's your fault. (laughs) You know what, Christ? If the Father chose me, I'd be saved. But since he didn't choose me, it's his fault. The reason you would go to hell is because you are a sinner. And you've demonstrated the fact that you're a sinner in your sin. No one will be able to stand before God and say, it's your fault, God. You are culpable for your own sin. And God doesn't ask you to consider whether you were elect and turn to him. He gives you a command. He says, repent and believe the gospel. So you need to put your thoughts, your energy behind obeying that command. So consider it, my brother. Consider if you're a Christian. God the Father has made you his son, his daughter. Consider his love for you and his tenderness and his care for you. Those of you who are not his, turn to him. He's a kind God. A God that would reason with you. You are not here by accident. He has ordained even this message, even this, this, this day, even this service. So would you turn to him and would you be converted? Let's pray. Father in heaven, praise your name and blessed be your name, I should say, like our brother Paul says. You have elected and adopted us, your people. You have been kind to us and you have continually shown your kindness to us practically. And we praise you, Father, for who you are. And we ask you to help us to live according to this gift that we have received. Lord, um, we cannot obey you apart from your power, apart from your spirit working in us. And we ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us to live for you and to honor you. Help us to understand our position in Christ. And let us um, let our lives, Lord, every action, every word, be a testament to your goodness, your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.